recording. Hey, how you doing? Good. Are you good there? Yeah. Um, you might want to turn your gain up just a little bit. Or is it just you? Is it just you? Early? Cause yeah, I think it's me just being early. Is this better or? Oh, yeah. You're fine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. With Muggsy, you want to get into, hey, early years, Baltimore, how rough was it? Oh, everything. Yeah, yeah. because, you know. You know my philosophy about guests. I think we can do a better radio show without one. But I, I'm fascinated by anybody who could, with the arrogance, you know, my whole concept about arrogance is beautiful. To be five feet three and think of the people that had to laugh at him. Yeah. And Earl Boykins, you know, to, and I won't do this with him because it's too cliche, but Earl Boykins was constantly having to let security guards know that he was on the team. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And people, you know, the murmur in the, uh, you know, if, 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 yep, did you ever go in a game that Muggsy or Earl Boykins was in? Oh, yeah. I saw Muggsy Bugs play. I mean, yeah. he's a hell of a player. It, it, right, oh, my God. Well, he was great. Earl was always off the bench. When Earl was coming off the bench, it was like you were at the circus. Everyone would start murmuring and laughing in the, <laughs> in the, in the crowd. But, uh, you know, I, I find people like that fascinating because they have to defy psychological odds as well. Everyone saying, absolutely, you better have a backup plan. Absolutely, for generic stuff, I think we should go Kobe, Kobe oh. one year, uh, LeBron versus Jordan. Just, yeah, you know all that and uh, stuff will make uncomfortable on that. But I'm I'm fascinated by the wire and the inner streets of Baltimore and what it was like at Dunbar High School. Oh, he played yeah. with great players. He, he did. Had three guys in NBA. Yeah, what? Yeah. So he played yeah. with the guys that, yeah, he, he played with great players when he was a kid. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't hurt. <laughs> you know, we played your Kobe interview last night, which was good, but the whole show got hijacked by Kurt Schilling. Oh yeah. It was a great show. I mean, oh, I'm sure. Oh, it was just people just coming in everywhere, like bonds and Clemens and Schilling and social media and politics it was great right and i i think that did you see my uh my adding on to your your great tweet which was it really you know people are trying to bring politics into it too but you know if you're nice to people it it this is such first grade advice it really goes a long way yeah bonds was awful to people and you know the guys who are having a tough time getting in right now politics aside they were awful to people and shilling especially in the last uh, years and so that changes everything. It does because it's people that you were awful to who have to vote, <laughs> and and so that's only you know it's only human that that happens. Yeah. But, oh, that's uh, and he was an Elmira pioneer, Kurt Schilling. I like when the Elmira pioneers make it into the Hall of Fame. Yes, he uh, played yeah. you know down the street from my house. Right down the street, huh? Yeah, the Elmira Pioneers, for a long time, I'm so surprised because, you know, the guys who really made it great from the Elmira Pioneers, they were a Baltimore Orioles uh, uh, farm team, really were from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Right. So there weren't that many people currently that, that did, but he was one of them. But, yeah, Jim Palmer, Earl Weaver managed the Elmira Pioneers. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and lived right across the street from my friend John Thompson. Uh, yeah, Myra Pioneers had a great... Uh, uh, Cal Ripken Jr. played for the Elmira Pioneers, and Cal Ripken managed them. <clears throat> there was... Uh, yeah, quite, and my friend Bobby's grandmother um, knew every Elmira Pioneer that came through in her head. 
And Elmira was full of Baltimore Orioles fans as a result. While we wait for Muggsy, uh, let me remind you that a great sponsor of the JT and Looney podcast episode 66 is Bet Online. Bet Online AG is where you can find them. Super Bowl's right around the corner. And if you're looking to place a bet on the Super Bowl or any type of sports going, Bet Online AG is the place to do it. Game spreads, totals, team player and coaching props. The place to go, Bet Online. They give you more options to bet on sports than any other place in the human race. I'm a poet and I don't even know it. There's always an online casino open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag. Take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses right at the end of this podcast. Just go to BetOnline and sign up. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Okay, let's see if we can bring in Muggsy. Hang on a second. There he is. There we go. There you go. <laughs> they was asking for a password on the um, when I was trying to log in. Oh wow! Okay. Go. Well, here you Thank are. Thank you doing this, Muggsy. It's J. I'm JT. I'm in Vegas, and Tom Looney. He's in La La Land. How are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good. How you guys doing? Yeah, good to have you. Better. Thanks for joining us on the Believe Podcast and love everything about it. We got so much we want to jump into with you. First off, where are we talking to you today? Where do you live? Where are you right now in your life? I am living in Charlotte, North Carolina here in the Queen City. Um, Here, uh, not in the beautiful weather that you have behind you. Uh, but but, but you is. you moved where people love you, the most popular player in Charlotte Hornets history. Why not move to where all the people love you? Yeah, actually, I never left. You know, once I was uh-huh. there, I always kept my house here. I've oh, okay. been part of the community ever since. I want to begin with the Baltimore years. Tell me about growing up as a kid. How rough was it? How tough was it? What was it like as a young boy when you were trying to figure out what you wanted to do in life? Because, man, you played with great people at Dunbar, unbelievable basketball players. But what were the early, early years like for you? Well, it was challenging, of course. I mean, being small and stature and uh, trying to pursue a game that no one thought a small guy could pursue. Um, but for me, you know, it was just an opportunity to play with the other guys, you know, uh, come from a, a rough neighborhood, you know, at the age of five, unfortunately I got shot, you know? Oh. So I think, yeah, I got shot. I got a lot of buck shots all in my arms and legs. Um, luckily for me, um, you know, I, I was okay. I was able to, you know, carry on, but I think it did a lot for my mindset. And I think it really started to kind of not care about what people thought about me uh, in terms of what I was trying to do. So I just kind of focusing on the skill set that I had and what I was trying to uh, retain and more or less trying to, you know, be just like all the other kids in the neighborhood, want to play sports, want to be good at it and want to be included in it. You know, Larry King just died, the great interviewer from CNN and radio. And he always said, when you have a guest, the best thing to do is try to find the chip on the shoulder that drives them. With you, it doesn't take long. Uh, you're 5'3", and you got shot at 5. Right? <laughs> right out of the box. Wow. You know, you pl- had plenty of people in your life, when you say you want to play in the NBA, and you're 6'3", people tell you you're too short, let alone 5'3". Who are some of the positive angels in your life that said, go for it? Well, the one that really stand out is my mom. You know, she's the one, the constant, 
the constant supporter and had no idea what basketball was and had no clue um, what it all meant in terms of the structure, the uh, the competitiveness of any of that. She just knew her little boy was coming in the house upset, very mad about people talking about his size and not so much about the game, it was about his size. Right. You know, and she all and her favorite saying was, you know, Ty, you know, I was Ty, wasn't Muggsy then. Right. It was Ty, you know, no one could be an expert on your life, you know, no one know your potential or your capability. So if you want to play basketball, you go right ahead. And at the time, you know, you like, okay, mama, it's just motherly advice. Right. But you know, that kind of stuck with me. And I didn't have anybody I can look at and say, well, that's who I wanted to be like. You know, right. because when I looked at NBA, you know, Tiny Archibald, he wasn't so tiny. He was, he was six, six feet one. tall. <laughs> he was six one. So that kind of, you know, that kind of did I didn't have that person. But then I looked just right across from me. It was a young man in my neighborhood who had to be small. He was really good. He started to get a lot of uh, uh, recognition in the neighborhood. His name was Dwayne Wood, and he went to Dunbar High School as well. So I started wow. to kind of look into him and start to pattern some of my game behind a guy like him. How physical was it in high school when you learned and you were getting pushed around? And were you attacking the rim at a very young age or working on your outside game? Because, again, the players that you played with before you got to Wake Forest had to elevate you so you'd be ready for the college scene. Talk about that transition from playing youth ball to making that journey to college. Well, I've always been a strong little stocky kid growing up. Uh, I used to wrestle. I played baseball, football, the other sports. So the contact was really right around my corner. Um, it's just a matter of uh, just understanding my skill set, my my position. Um, it was a physical, you know, the game was much physical than it is today. Um, hand checking, you can kind of go in on the lane and get bumped without being called a foul. So that was a motivation for me, you know, and the guys that I played with, the likes of the David Wingate, the late Reggie Lawrence, who, who passed away, and the Reggie Williams, you know, we all had, great uh people being recruited so for me i always felt like if they come in and see them you know i got to make sure because a lot of our recruiting took place in practice and i felt like if they come to watch them in practice i need to leave them talking about me when the uh, scouts goes out the door so that was uh, one of my things that I, to put myself in the game Muggsy Bogues joining us on the JT and Looney podcast. They had a 30 for 30 you've done a lot of cool tv and film 30 for 30 had uh, a special on your high school team, the Dunbar Poets. I love that Baltimore celebrates poetry and Edgar Allan Poe. It's so great. And, uh, you know, the Ravens named after a uh, Edgar Allan Poe poem. I love that. You had three eventual NBA players on your high school basketball team. I mean, that has to be a huge part of, uh, you got, it's got to be a huge part of who you are and how you made it where you did. Oh, absolutely. You know, we all grew up together. You know, everybody wow. was... Was, was chasing that dream. We all come from the same projects, same neighborhood. Um, and, you know, as a kid, you know, for us, you know, we just wanted to make it out to get an education, possibly go to college, you know, and hopefully, you know, things go well to make it on to that next level. So that was our focus. You know, and I think with all those players and all those egos, I think the key ingredient that managed it all was Coach Wade. He was the one that kept those egos in check, allowed us to be the, the young men that we needed to be in order to reach our full potential. Wake Forest, 1987, first team all ACC, and eventually 
your numbers retired? What impact did Wake Forest have on you from an education standpoint, bonding with teammates, kids on campus? What was the college years like for you? Well, college was, again, it was a challenging, uh, just like anything, you know, every every level you, you reach, they want to say, well, he's too small for that. You know, high school, well, he's too small for college. So when I got the opportunity to go to college and Wake Forest was really the school for me, you know, not only just for the basketball aspect of it, but for after basketball, for the education you just alluded to, it kind of gave me an understanding if I be successful here off the court, then regardless of what happened on the court, I can be successful in life. But it was a, but the ACC was such a big opportunity for me. You know, it was on a big stage, night in and night out, playing against the best players, the Michael Jordan, the Mark Price in the world mm-hmm. and all that. So it gave me an opportunity to showcase my talent because you're playing against the best. And I always felt that if you're playing with the best, you had success with the best, you need to be included with the best. How did you learn how to be patient? especially because you have to talk about one subject every day of your life, something for which you had no control over, your height. How did you learn how to be patient about that bleeping subject? Well, I just put it in in the proper uh, perspective. You know, I just felt like it was inquisitive minds wanted to know. You know, they never knew a guy of my size being able to pursue the game the way I did and play it at the level so I just didn't get to the point to where I got frustrated or angry. Right. I just used it as a, a mechanism to, to, to teach them, to let them know that the game of basketball is meant for whoever had the ability to play. You know, tall, short, or small, the game is for all. Now, you mentioned you come into the NBA and you're a high draft pick, 12th overall. You're not a guy that got lost in the shuffle. People knew who you were. (laughs) You come into the league. What are your earliest memories of kicking ass? Like, you come to the NBA. You grow up looking at the NBA. You got teammates in the NBA. You know the league. What was the earliest memory your rookie year saying, I'm kicking ass. I, I belong here. Well, you know, it was a historic moment for me being the size that I was getting the opportunity to go across and shake Commissioner David Stern's hand, may he rest in peace, uh, because a lot of us didn't get that opportunity. You know, the Spud Webbs, the Michael Adams, and so forth, you know, they made it in the league, but we didn't get that They didn't get the opportunity to go walk across the state. So that was one, uh, a big historic moment for me, for one. Uh, but as a rookie, you know, having a guy like Moses Malone, may he rest in peace, tall Manute Bow as your mentors, you know, you wanted to come in there, and prove them to let them know that you do belong. You know, you are capable of being on this level uh, with these guys, you know, the Hall of Fame. So I just wanted to go out there and, and show that I belong. I remember my very first game against Magic Johnson. You know, they made a big thing out of the 6'9 and the 5'3. And uh, and I know Magic, his first thing with me, you know, he always told me that, you know, believe, don't let nobody get you down, continue to believe in it. And I always stuck with me, you know, and I first time he put that ball on the floor, I was able to get it and let them know that oh. I am arrived. Oh, <laughs> I love it. What about the first day you go to work in the NBA? You know, a lot of us, if we go to some, somewhere to work the first day, we're there, we got to fill out paperwork. Uh, what is it like the first? Does somebody else fill out your paperwork? Do you have to sit down with a pen and pencil and fill out paperwork? Do you bring your own sneakers or they give them to you? What is the first day like in the NBA? When you well, go to practice. luckily for us, it wasn't no paperwork involved. Okay. You just had to bring your, your, your shoes and, <laughs> and your body. Okay. Uh, but it was, you know, for me, 
it was a, a, a eye opener. You know, it was a shocker because coming from college and then now going to the NBA, you know, I had guys at halftime in the game um, smoking a cigarette, <laughs> and drinking a beer. And wow. here it is. I'm like, this is what the NBA <laughs> halftime is like. And, uh, you know, because we used to Gatorade and water in our locker room in college. <laughs> but it was a, it was an eye opener to see that the level is a man's league and uh, you got to be ready. It's an, it's a day to day type of uh, service because, you, 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 you know, your, your job could be taken any given moment. Yeah. And that's one thing that you got to understand. It's a hobby, something that you love playing, but also a business and a service that you got to perform. Yeah, I find it interesting, too, with the history of the league, as we're talking to Muggsy Bogues, if Charlotte doesn't come in an expansion team, your life changes. You're playing somewhere else from the Wizards. You go to the Warriors. You could have bounced around anywhere else. What a what a blessing for you that the NBA was flourishing, expanding. Ownership wanted to come in, pay that ownership fee. There's a new franchise, too, Miami and Charlotte. It brings more jobs into the league, but eventually it brings you to your home. Well, I'm originally from Baltimore, so yeah. I was already at home in Washington. But I figured it if the expansion team wouldn't have um, arrived, um, of course, I'd have been still with the Washington Bullets at the time. Right. Um, and I felt like, you know, given another year, uh, having one year experience, you know, I felt like I would have flourished just like I did when I came to Charlotte. Uh, but I just think Charlotte was just an opportunity, a match made in heaven. You know, it was more or less the players that, was around me, you know, myself, the Dell Currys, the Larry Johnson, the Lonzo Morning. We all fit one another without, yeah. we complimented each other with our game. So it really put me back on that national stage. And it, I, I would say it resurrected my career in, in a sense to where it gave fans a sense that this kid is capable of playing in the NBA. Now, I know from going and visiting Aunt Mary, I'm from upstate New York, Aunt Mary lived in Washington. The last stop before Washington on that Greyhound bus, Baltimore. So were you pissed off when you're playing for the Washington Bullets so close to home and people get to see you and then you're you're uh, taken in the supplementary draft by Charlotte? Were you pissed off that you had to go to Charlotte at the time? Well, at first, um, you know, I, I was. I was mm. I was a little upset when I first found the news because after the season was over, we had an exit meeting. And then during that exit meeting, I was told that, we're going to kind of change some things here. We're going to bring guys in that kind of fit your style of play. And uh, we're going to be a more up-tempo type of team. Uh, but by the time I got left that meeting and went home to my apartment, I got a phone call from my agent. And he told me that I just got traded, picked oh. up by the expansion draft for oh. uh, Charlotte Horn. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I just left the meeting with our general manager. He told us that we was, you know, they was going to surround players, you know, surround me with players that fit wow. my style. But then, you know, he just told me, welcome to the NBA. Um, this is the nature of the business. And uh, now, then, then I kind of put it back in perspective. It was another opportunity for me to go down here, which a place where I, I was familiar with playing in Wake Forest was only an hour away from, mm -hmm. from Charlotte. So I knew fans were familiar with me and um, just came down here and, and made the best out of it. And at least you grew up in Baltimore. You already were used to people lying right to your fucking face. <laughs> You know it. That's it. That's wow. Adulthood is the same. Wow. Hey, uh, Bugsy, we want to jump in with just a couple of uh, current NBA topics before we wrap it up. When you hear the Jordan versus LeBron debate, and I'm on the radio every night, and Tom, we've worked together for so many years, 
you know, I, I go from that 6-0, and Jordan never lost, but he took a couple of years off to play baseball. He didn't win with the Wizards. And then I see LeBron go back every year and win in Cleveland and win two in Miami, and he just won with the Lakers, and they're undefeated on the road this year. I would say rationally that LeBron is catching Jordan. I can't convince the Jordan fans. You'll never convince them that Jordan's not the greatest of all time, but when you see LeBron doing what he's doing every night, what do you think of that debate? Well, for me, it's a little, it's twofolded for me. I mean, because one, you just touched on some things. And, and LeBron has done some amazing things. 18 years, able to um, put his teams on his shoulders and carry them, you know, wherever he goes. Uh, Cleveland, as you mentioned, Miami, as well as the Lakers. Uh, but for me, you know, when it comes to the GOAT, the, the player, that guy, it always going to be MJ for me. And this, and the reason why is because when I look at players and forget about all the accolades that they have, you look at a deficiency. Each and every player has a deficiency in their game, except for one. That's MJ. From both sides of the floor, it's not one deficiency that he has. Fundamentally, and his athletic ability matched both. And the IQ level was off the charts. So, that's what separate me from that LeBron, you know, still, you know, free throws, his shooting and other things winning. He, and then they always try to compare. He don't have that killer instinct, but you know, killer instinct comes in, in, in different forms for me. You know, it, it could be a pass. It could be a setup. It could be a score. You know, he has that. And, but LeBron, I mean, MJ had the killer instinct where we knew where that ball was going. We, it was nothing we can do to stop it. A friend of mine who loves hockey says that hockey fans never spend any time comparing anybody to Gretzky. And do we sometimes miss out on the joy of enjoying Kobe or enjoying LeBron James by debating whether or not they're better than Michael? Absolutely. Because they all are great in their own rights. They all are goats. They all sitting at the same table in some in some sort in you know in their own rights, but you know and, and that's what they miss the joy out of these guys and what they bring to the to the table. You know, it's an unbelievable skill set that they have, but what more importantly is the mindset because each player comes in and want to be the best, but how you be it each and every day when you step on the court, knowing that is a game plan to stop you from the strengths that you have. Finally, uh, what did Kobe's passing one-year anniversary huh. the other day mean to you? I mean, it's so tough. Tom's in L.A. My son grew up a Kobe fan, and it didn't get much easier seeing everything that we saw on TV yesterday. Yeah. You know, we drafted Kobe in 96. Yeah. All right. You know, we felt like we had an opportunity to get him, but we knew that, you know, he his hair was in a different place. He wanted to play in LA and it was just a sad day yesterday. Uh, just reminiscing the things that, you know, he meant to not only to the league, but to a lot of individuals and not only just himself, but everybody that was on that, on that chapter. Um, it just was a sad day that we lost some great people and hopefully that, um, you know, everybody understand life is so precious that we can't take it for granted. You're such a good talker. What's the three OG podcast? The three OG podcast is a little con little thing that we started with my friends, myself, Charles Oakley, and Earl Curtin, who played in the league. You know, we just found a way to just kind of connect with some of the older players, some of the current players, just talk about the game, a lot of topics that's going on, 
with today's society uh, because uh, where we are today, you know, a lot of things have become virtual and, uh, and now things has become a, a way where we can kind of lend our voice to the community. So we started the podcast. Hopefully everybody can tune in and listen to us chat it up. Oak tree, man. What a guy. I'm a oh Nick my God. Man. Oh, the, the Oak tree Ewing back in the day, you Lonzo, uh, Larry, when, before Larry came, I mean, just the wars at the garden. Incredible. You attacking the rim, Ewing, the big trees down there and you fighting with the mugs, Muggsy. We're so happy to talk to you. Leave us with something inspirational. We're in a pandemic. We just came through a summer, the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. You're a guy who has a big vision, a big platform. Leave us with something positive well i just hope everybody just understand that you know we're a human race and that everybody deserve equal justice everybody deserve fairness and hopefully that we can move on because um it's been so much divisiveness over the world these last uh several months or years or whatever the case may be i just wish everybody could look in the mirror and have that reflection back and love themselves and not just say i like myself love themselves because if you love yourself and respect yourself it's easy to respect others. And that's what we need to do. Just, just that little kind respect goes a long way. And we need to do that more so than other. And not only look in the mirror and love ourselves, look at each other and love each other. Absolutely. God bless you, Muggsy. Thanks for doing this. We'll download the podcast. Appreciate you coming on with us. Thanks, Muggsy. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Okay. But he was good. Oh, yeah, he was. So delightful. Yeah, just an inspirational guy. Just yeah. To- who, you know, if, if we had more time to get into the mean streets of Baltimore, I mean, that's a storyline from, I think, watching season one of The Wire in Baltimore and his age group and what he saw and being shot at the age of five and how he got out. And it's incredible. Those stories have always fascinated me. The guys who got out of Compton and Baltimore. And yeah. Detroit and the bad parts of those neighborhoods because they have plenty of good parts and, and people who are told and our entire culture makes fun of anybody it's not even just urban culture who wants to do homework you know we, we, we uh even in the simpsons they mock the nice kids next door who don't swear and do their homework <laughs> you know i mean we just we do have a thing about mocking the smart and saying oh i don't you know we don't need another president who went to harvard or yale why not why, why don't we need another president who went to Harvard or Yale? Uh, it's uh, it's we our anti-smart culture at times. No, we need the pre- people who went to Harvard or Yale to uh, to be less emotional and be, be more technocratic about making decisions about our beautiful country and not the crazy commoners like us. I find I'm less emotional now than I was. I'm not. I wasn't a politically unhinged guy over the last six months or right. Last- and i'm noticing that my politically unhinged friends because i had a lot of friends who became politically unhinged right we both did yeah. the election for whatever reason they're taking a break too oh good nobody <laughs> seems to be taking a politically unhinged break except for kurt schilling uh, kurt schilling <laughs> oh, decided oh, to double down as he only got 71 percent of the vote and will not be a member of the baseball hall of fame and then he just went on i mean i almost felt like because i watched it live Call me a baseball geek. I think this is a really important sports topic. No matter who you are, where you are, what other sports you love more, if you don't put the Baseball Hall of Fame on the highest pedestal, then, I, then I'm appointing at you and I'm questioning you as a sports fan. This is right. to everybody as we're broadcasting. We all grew up with baseball. 
all of us played Little League. All of us has a memory of baseball. We got our team. So bigger than all of that's the Hall of Fame. I'm a Yankee fan, and I'll tell you, the Yankees are probably one of the only brands that can separate like the Dodgers where you are in L.A., but it all goes to the Hall of Fame. It all siphons up to the Hall of Fame, and when you don't get in or you get in, it's a freaking big topic. And for Kurt Schilling, who should be in for a number of reasons, I don't think he's in now because he became politically unhinged and he became this irrational lunatic on social media. Yeah, and it's also, as I have said over the years, it's not always politics. It's uh, how you treat other people. And I think that's going to hurt him and Barry Bonds. You know, there's other steroid guys in the Hall of Fame, but the uh, but they were nice to the people who vote, who are a lot of times baseball writers, etc. So you got to be nice to people. It's like a first grade message that somehow, you know, maybe Kurt had it when he was younger, but now that he's gotten older, you know, doesn't he have anybody around him that just says, "Be kind, <laughs> don't tweet that," and and obviously not, and. It's just too bad because who do, who belongs in the Hall of Fame more than Kurt Schilling? <laughs> you smell that? That is the smell of the midway point of the JT and Looney podcast where I'm required to talk to you about Kansas City steaks. <laughs> oh, you smell that? That is the smell of the big game next Sunday, the one with the AFC champion and the NFC champion, but we can't say really the name of the game. We have to call it the big game. That's what it says here on the copy, even though it doesn't sound like I'm reading copy. It just sounds like I'm talking. Go to KansasCitySteaks.com slash game day. Save up to 25% on combos. Perfect for game day. And you get free shipping just for being friends of the JT and Ludi podcast. Episode 66. Just type in the shipping code BELIEVE. You get free shipping with B L E A V. That's the name of the podcast company that brings you the JT and Looney podcast. Try out the snack pack combo featuring small plates with big flavor mini beef Wellington steak burger sliders, mac and cheese melts, shrimp wrapped in bacon. That's all high-protein, low-carbohydrate stuff right there. That's up my alley. <sighs> Except I'm fasting in January and February. You know, America gains two pounds every Christmas and Thanksgiving. That's not too bad, except after 20 years, that's 40 pounds. So I always fast in January and February. But it's not about me. It's about Kansas City Steaks. Go to KansasCitySteaks.com slash game day. Use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V. Get your free shipping. Every order, flash frozen. They'll deliver it directly to your house, apartment, or tent. Shout out to Peter, Luis, Little Victor, Carlos, and Abraham. Those are my guys when I go on my hike. Part of my hike is along the Royal Seco River. Those beautiful souls live in tents along the river next to the freeway. Satisfaction guaranteed or they'll give you your money back. Kansas City Steaks will. Not Peter and Carlos and little Victor and Abraham and Louise. Every cut of steak imaginable. Appetizers, desserts, barbecue. Kansas City Steaks. Big games big taste. Now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. It's interesting because I talked to Scott Miller, the great baseball writer who we had on in the past. And 
with Bleacher Report, and he's a voter, and he voted for him, but he explained to me why he was a borderline Hall of Famer. He only had 214 wins. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he didn't have – the beginning of his career was nothing. I right. mean, you want to talk about – it was less than mediocre. So he, he was the definition of a late bloomer. He's one of the greatest late bloomers of all time because of what he did with three straight years of 300 strikeouts. Only three guys ever did that in baseball history. He won three World Series – and he did it on the biggest stage against the Yankees with the Diamondbacks and the Red Sox. So if you look at that, and he wasn't good, he was brilliant in the biggest games. Yeah. So we wonder why. We often laugh and debate, well, why is Eli going to the Hall of Fame? If his whole body, uh, his whole career wasn't brilliant, but he was brilliant beating Tom Brady in those two postseason runs. Kind of similar to Kurt Schilling. His numbers were borderline until he got to the playoffs, and I think that pushed him through. But he's not going to get in. Yeah, and when it also you got to remember this too. I don't know if you always agree with this when I say it, but it's a Hall of Fame. Did they bring great fame to the game? And Kurt Schilling sure did in the most important games. So that whether or not people like that, that is an ingredient, and that's how people like Terrell Davis, you know, get into the Hall of Fame. He didn't have a long career. Gail Sayers didn't either, but they were brilliant in the big games, and they brought a lot of fame to it. And it's a museum, and Scott also made a really good point that stayed with me. Two things that came out of Schilling not getting in is that when you look at the Hall of Fame, Barry Bonds' uniform and his cleats and his bat. Right. Pete Rose's batting gloves are all in the Hall of Fame. So if you go to the museum, it's all there. But the point is a lot of young people now are not going to go visit the Hall of Fame if no one gets in. Right. So 19, 20, 22 – you're not going to drive to the Hall of Fame to see Larry Walker's plaque. Okay, Larry Walker was a hell of a player. <laughs> you know, Larry Walker, very similar to Schilling. Yeah. He got in in his 10th year, his final year of eligibility. He was a Hall of Famer after the third year, the fifth year, the seventh year. But they made him wait, and I thought they were doing the same thing with Kurt Schilling. They were putting him in the penalty box. There's two different penalty boxes. The one with the key. Mm-hmm. We- you can get out because you have the key, and then the one that you'll never get out of the penalty box, and that's Bonds and Clemens, as they only got 61% of the vote. They can't go from 61 to 75. It's almost mathematically impossible. But for Kurt Schilling, he only needed 16 more votes, and I think there would have been more than 16 of the voters who would have said, you know, I busted his balls for nine years. I don't like what he said politically. He was pro-Trump. He said a lot of crazy things, but it is the final year. Hopefully he learned his lesson. I'm going to let him in. That won't happen now because he's screaming, take me off the ballot. He went on Twitter and on a rant when he didn't get in in the ninth year, and now he's toast for good. It was so sad to see him. Well, he's not the boss, though. Who says they're going to take him off the ballot? Yeah, but I think what he did was he proved to the writers. These are the writers. I know. I know. Who want to be God. These are the writers who want to play. You God can't flip your bird at the people NFL who are voting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah you, I you, mean, the NFL Hall of Fame. I talked to Howard Balls or Jim Trot or John Clayton. I know a lot of the voters personally, and I don't think they want to play God. If they don't think someone belongs in the Hall of Fame, they don't put them in. But the baseball writers, follow me here, they leave guys off the ballot. They don't even turn the ballot in. And they leave guys off from year right. one to nine, put them in year 10, because they're egomaniacs, a lot of them, and they want to do this on purpose. They want to bring the attention to themselves. And they always do it. It was like the one guy who did, our friend Fred Hickman. Yes. When he decided not to vote for Shaq for right. the MVP. 
He on, he was the only guy. Why? It brought attention. It was to good him. for his career. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody was watching his little sports show on CNN. Oh, remember when he called in live? He heard about it and called in. Yes. He called into the show. I was like, well, I, well we, we backed that up. But uh, it's a shame for Kurt Schilling because it's, it's great to wear a gold coat in the NFL or to have that Hall of Fame baseball blazer and sign your sign of your yeah. HOF. To sign Kurt Schilling, H-O-F. It's different than just signing a Kurt Schilling. And again, he's it's a it goes back to the topic that we were just mentioning. Is that it could be the elderly, it could be someone you went to high school with, it could be someone younger than you. People getting politically unhinged coming off this election year, and now they're known for their absurdity with their politics when we just knew him for being a celebrity and really good as an athlete. I had a personal trainer. He is a great guy, and uh, I would still go back to him. But he's obsessing on, uh, you know, personal trainers are having an issue right now. I'm I'm thinking this is probably even part of it because the gyms are closed in California. And he um, was normal with his politics, et cetera. And what I mean is, I don't know what we agreed and disagreed on, but we never really talked about it much during... Uh, when I was working out with him, I think it was the Obama years. I think he voted for Obama, I think. But he's all of a sudden, every day, all he does all day is paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs on Instagram about politics and cancel culture and what what and trans issues. And I'm thinking, I don't roll out of my bed <laughs> in the morning and think about any of those things. Uh, you and I have always agreed on, I don't roll out of bed in the morning and worry and bite my nails over who's president. You know, we worry about paying our bills and uh, providing for our family. And it's, you know, the normal things, normal things. Not, And that's one of the reasons why I think still uh, as a country, when people say we're so divided, half of the people run out of this country and don't give a shit about politics. That's still a very stable country. Half the people didn't vote. That's still a very stable country. Uh, when 97% of people are voting, you know, after the war in El Salvador or uh, in Baghdad, when they're trying to develop a new government, that's when you got chaos. When ha- when things are so smooth, really, that the, you know, the lights are on and you can get a passport. You know, and I, I have a friend from uh, Argentina. Is it, where, where is the place? Is it Argentina that's always crazy with the communist government and stuff? Venezuela. And Venezuela. Venezuela. In Venezuela, you can't get a passport because they don't want people leaving because no one wants to live there. You can go get a passport in America and you can leave if you want. That means we have a stable country. It could be a lot worse. Well, again, uh, the one thing I think we learned since our last podcast and the peaceful transition after the storming Mm -hmm. of the Capitol, which I don't take lightly, is that Joe Biden has his hands full like any president. Right. George Bush, George W. Bush became the president, and then 9-11 happened. Right. And it changed his entire presidency. He was supposed to be just a caretaker, and then bang. Yeah. Yeah. Donald Trump had a lot of of his policies going forward, and a lot of his supporters loved what he was doing, and then, boom, a pandemic came. Say what you will about Donald Trump, and a lot of people say negative things. If there's no such thing as a pandemic coming from wherever you think it came from, it changes everything. Yep. Still, he would have did a lot of wild things, still would have been controversial. And President Biden takes over and a week in the Oval Office, he's doing the one thing I don't like. What? He's making projections. OK, 100 million people, 300 million by the end of the summer. Don't do it. You don't need to. 
President Trump said only 15 people have it. It'll be gone. The weather will change. The summer will come. There'll be no virus. Then he started talking about, hey, this thing called warp speed. We're going to get the vaccine out ahead of time. People are like, yeah, right. You'll Mm -hmm. say anything to get elected. Well, guess what? They got the vaccine out way ahead of time. Every scientist were, mm-hmm. were, were amazed that they were able to do that. And it shows about scientific ingenuity and what this country can do when we are in a panic. World War II, World War One, ramping up, building tanks and building ships. We can do things when it's a priority. Now we have the vaccine. We have two forms of it. We're waiting on a third and we can't get it in enough arms because the infrastructure of this country at the state level can't figure it out. Anybody can run for government at the state level. Anybody can run at the federal level. But you're seeing now that at the state level, we have so many incompetent people from governors all the way down to state representatives who didn't have a plan together because they didn't believe in warp speed. They didn't believe it would be ready. Now it's kind of ready and they can't get the shots in arms. It, it, It infuriates me. Well, yeah. And here's another thing, too. To go back to your projections, how did those projections work for Trump? We have 15 now. It's going to go away. And that's and Biden shouldn't be doing the same thing about projections. Let's just try to get the infrastructure right. So people and and it doesn't help when the secretary of health was also resigns, you know, with three weeks left in the administration. Just so much chaos that hopefully one thing he can bring is less chaos uh, that's what we can we can one thing any president can bring we always hope is I want a nice boring president who doesn't say crazy things <laughs> we have no chaos that's what we used to I think because you know we've got 200 channels now or 400 channels in Netflix and Amazon people want the presidents to be as entertaining as the World Wrestling Federation you know we have a we have a country that loves comic books I don't want our presidents to be like comic book heroes or world wrestling federation debaters i want them to be boring like millard fillmore <laughs> we just love projections in this country we, we do stock yep. market we love it in sports how many games hall of fame is so and so a hall of famer yep yeah, yep. so we love projections and and that's what's happening now but you got to be careful because when you're the president or a senator or someone big and you give a projection about how many needles you're going to put in arms you end up getting mocked yeah, and then they, they have that video, and then they play it over and over and over again, and then you fail. And if you go over the top and you meet expectations, that's good. I'm pulling for everyone when it comes to COVID. I'm pulling. There's so many places, you in Los Angeles, me in yeah. Vegas. The numbers are popping. They're skyrocketing, and all of a sudden, they're going to open up outdoor dining again. Oh, wow, that's interesting. That plays into the political theater, not fear of, well, once the election changes, the one candidate might open up the country again. It was all political. I'm not here on this podcast to debate that topic. I'm too tired to debate it, but I am kind of fascinated. Well, most of the asshole states have outdoor dining. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm all for outdoor dining. I think if you're going to live your well, life. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say outdoor dining. Most of them had really bad. Outdoor dining is probably fine. Uh, a lot of them didn't follow. A lot of the states that are suffering the most poo-pooed masks and being careful. And now the because they thought it was... See, people made it political. Oh, it was just it was just the liberals in the blue states that were suffering. Who cares? And so they didn't. And, and that's not listen to anything they say. And then, unfortunately, those states that didn't protect themselves got really sick. And we don't want anybody sick. We want to put politics aside, get shots in arms and have everybody healthy. 
Yeah, well, I'm worried because I don't think anybody should be allowed outside their homes in Great Britain and Los Angeles. Those are the two people in the world that I'm seeing the most on TV. I couldn't so agree more. I'm, I'm really shocked that they're talking about outdoor dining in, in Southern California reopening and reopening when I see what's happening in the UK and Los Angeles specifically. Those are two places that I didn't think would say, hey, uh, we're kind of ready to open things up again. Come on out again with the numbers that I'm seeing. Yeah, I'm worried about that too. And and it's just it's my chaos theory of the universe, especially when it comes to something unknown like this and this virus, that everybody's winging it. Everybody in every state and every governor of every party is uh, is winging it and having a real tough time with it because. They also get so much backlash from the people who put money in their speedo, which is business. Business is hurting. And the business people are the ones who donate to their campaigns. And so that's half of what's wrong with our system anyway, is that our, our politicians are a bunch of strippers who are constantly raising money and having people tuck money in their speedos and their bikinis so they can run for office again and whoever tucks the most money in there gets you know gets legislation that protects them but that's not how it should be but we've seen whether it's left or right blue or red so often politicians care more about their uh, keeping their job than they do with the goddamn country beautiful a uh, couple of other quick housekeeping items by the uh, way i should say more about their goddamn job than they do about the country i got my goddamn in the wrong place <laughs> I don't hear you using the word goddamn too. Often. I know. You know what happened? It's one of my favorite, I should say, it's one of my most habitual curses. But I had a born again general manager when I was at Extra Sports 1150, and he was pulling his hair out because I was saying it on the radio all the time in the Looney and Dave show days. And so I kind of got out of the habit of using that in an open microphone. Yeah, I'm always on an open microphone, and I work with people that are just really aggressive with some of their comments and mm -hmm. you know again i'm going through that stage too where I'm, I'm reminding my young sons how to speak in the house because i'm starting to learn how they speak outside the house oh right they there's got to be the switch oh we're going through that stage now well they, they got good a dad who didn't allow any cursing yeah. in the house and so my mother didn't either i know yeah yeah so but then again who am i to be a glass <laughs> Well, like like me, the guy, the guy. You want to go back in the hot tub time machine <laughs> and go back and ask my folks what I was like at seventeen? Oh or my boy! Friend? So I'm going through that stage now with a 19 year old and a 17 year old boys. So they they forget to they forget about the switch. They're cursing inside the house. Well, they they know I'm in the house now all the time. I'm doing oh. the podcast and the uh -huh. shows in the house, and there's only a wall separating us. Sometimes they forget that I'm in the house. <laughs> oh, okay. Themselves, so I have to remind them uh, to clean their language up because they're good kids. They don't basically. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. That, but, but that's what you do when you're 17, 18, and 19. You watch things, you talk, you watch more movies, you start to watch Goodfellas and The Godfather and Casino and different types of TV oh, yeah. shows on Netflix, and your language evolves. Oh, my God, that's right. And But we had the, just like you did, we had that switch in my house. And I, I remember one saying to my mother, uh, if I smoked cigarettes, would you be the type of mom that would let me smoke in the house because you wouldn't want me smoking out in public? And my mother, this is my mother's answer. Ha! <laughs> With just one big laugh right in my face. Ha! So I knew that was the answer, that I wasn't going to be smoking cigarettes in the house. Because there were always those parents. There were, you know, and there's, you know parenting is a crapshoot, as you know. 
My friend Jimmy, you could swear in front of his mother. You could smoke Marlboro Reds in the living room. And then there's my, my friend Greg Malinowski. I would never curse in his house or you wouldn't consider lighting up a Marlboro in the living room. There's, you know, parents have different styles and different levels of respect that they demand or different levels of behavior. And usually the kids turn out fine either way. Yeah, years from now, we're going to have to look in history books to find out what the word spanking meant. And what was it like <laughs> to be spanked? Because that will be outlawed. That will be right? outlawed the next generation to come. No one knows what that means. Yeah, and a lot of times, you know, if you they say part of the problem with it is that uh, those who got spanked will say they deserved it when it happened. But I will tell you, there are times that my mother had to go off and uh, if I gave the background, uh, I usually deserved it. <laughs> they always say that's part of the problem. But I was a very large boy who didn't, you know, and it has to be tough for a small mom. And my dad died young to try to worry about high testosterone teenagers and what they think they can get away with. And at times my mother had to try to frighten us into getting back in line. Hey guys, it's a new year, and every day is a fresh start for you to just live. Travis Pastrana here to tell you exactly why I teamed up with Clay Thompson, Alex Morgan, and Paul Rodriguez to launch our new wellness brand, Just Live. As professional athletes, we put ourselves through a lot, physically and mentally. So we founded Just Live around all-natural, THC-free CBD products. Being from the East Coast, I was pretty skeptical about CBD products, but as an athlete, it's easy to see when something works. And when my dad was at wit's end, living in a fog of painkillers, severe lack of sleep, numerous surgeries later, I recommended he try CBD. It allowed him to get an extra couple hours of sleep, and it made all the difference to get my dad back on his feet. So don't go another day with pain, inflammation, or lack of sleep. I recommend trying Just Live today. These are products we fully trust and stand behind because we want you to be able to go out and just live. So get 20% off your order with code armchair at justlive.com. That's 20% off at justlive.com with the code armchair. What do you live for? Fran Leibowitz. New documentary by Martin Scorsese on Netflix. Fantastic. Fran Leibowitz, who I've seen my whole life as a New Yorker, in the background of an Andy Warhol dinner party or something big, but I really never knew who she was. She's well, you loved Letterman. Didn't you know her from Letterman? No, I didn't. And I watched Letterman wow. in college in the late night show, but I must have not watched that episode. She's an American author, public speaker. Occasionally, she's been in movies, and Martin Scorsese is one of her best friends, and they just came out with a Netflix series, which I just watched, which was, I thought, fantastic. I really enjoyed it. She was so cool and so unique, and yeah. she's got writer's block for a decade. Her childhood was fascinating. She's a lesbian who wears a... Uh, sports coat is her look and a white collared crisp shirt with cufflinks only wears jeans and cowboy boots and she walks around the city and this whole documentary as she walks around the city of New York is incredible because she knows New York City as good as anyone yep. ever lived in New York City so it's the Netflix series pretend it's a city which Martin Scorsese interviews her about New York City and other subjects. You got to be into New York. You got to be into Fran, but I knocked it out and I really liked it. And you got to be into writing. I've been a writer all my life. I always liked writers. Fem you got to be into female comics. You know, I, I, I've always liked comics and writers, but I've, and, and I always loved female stand ups and comics, but I was alone on that island. 
I live in the real world. A lot of times guys aren't as generous and open-minded with female writers and comics as they are with me. I remember when Roseanne was the number one hit, my friends would say, yeah, I love that John Goodman because it was uncool to say you liked Roseanne or they just didn't like her. Uh, I, I, so I've always loved her because I knew, I, I thought anybody who was on Letterman was cool. And when I was watching, she was, I just knew her as a guest on Letterman. So he zeroed in on her early, he or Meryl Marco, uh, zeroed in on, on her as a New York iconic type of writer and comic and figure. I didn't know, did they talk about, I just... I don't know if this sounds right, but it's, uh, you know, you got to be, you got to keep it real. I just always assumed she was a lesbian. Do they talk about that? In oh, yeah. The, okay. Yeah. yeah because yeah, I saw get, episode one, but sense. you get the sense and okay. her lifestyle and what her, her whole culture was about in New York and some of the issues that she had as a young girl. But the whole, the whole documentary, which is great, is about the difference, which connected with me between old New York and new New York. Okay. That's what it's about. And she tells Oh, her, right. Having to walk her. through New York. She talks about having to walk through New York now that the cell phone is around. Yeah, and she doesn't have a cell phone. Right, and yeah. She never had a computer. And she's a writer. And again, she's very quirky, but she's funny. To see the joy that Martin Scorsese had, the belly laughs. Oh, yeah. That really makes it good, too. That kind of also invites men into the room because it's Martin Scorsese, you know, who uh, directed all those great manly movies. So it does bring a great sense of testosterone into the room and brings pe more people into the project that might have been there. And it was very generous of him to do. And I guess they've known each other since they were kids. Yeah, they, they have, and they go back, and again, Fran Leibowitz, the history of New York, her writer's block. Let me tell you, I don't want to give it away for everybody. Don't want to give it away, because yeah, I think you should watch it, and not everybody's going to like it. Not everybody's going to like it. It's real. Right. You know, the big takeaway for me is she hasn't written anything forever. She's had real writer's block for over a decade, and she's a successful writer. She cannot write anything she can't finish anything her essays were legendary yep. 1970s and 80s new york and that's what made her famous but she makes a living public speaking and i would like to make a living public speaking mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons we do a podcast i have two radio shows just get more reps yep. yeah trying to get more reps and if she can do it and she's really fascinating because she's read maybe more than any human being that's ever walked yep. the planet. She's read more books than anyone. And when she speaks, she packs these playhouses off Broadway, packs them, lines around the block, because people enjoy hearing her speak and how quirky she is and her thoughts. So she's now one of the more successful public speakers that I've ever seen after watching this documentary. To think that a writer wouldn't have a computer. I could talk her into it. Do you realize how much better Shakespeare and Mark Twain would have been had they had Microsoft Word? <laughs> because with Microsoft Word, you can write a 30-page paper, and then all of a sudden, you know, what, what, how many times was Mark Twain done and said, I'm not typing it again. That's it. That, right, that's, that, right, that's Tom Sawyer. That's what you're getting. I'm not changing another word. I'm not sitting down again in that farm and typing it again in my study. And But with Microsoft Word, you can take, oh, wow, that 16th paragraph that I wrote would be better as the first paragraph. And you take it and you copy and you paste and you put it in the beginning. 
Microsoft Word, one of the greatest inventions ever for a writer because you can move things around and put things in a better order and get rid of your first 15 paragraphs because you realize your 16th was the best rather than just saying, oh, fuck it. It's, I, I, there's my 400 pages that I typed. It's the 16th time that I typed it. I'm out of whiteout. This is what you're getting. With Microsoft Word, you can just move things around in seconds and have a better product. I can't believe a writer that's alive at this moment on this planet wouldn't have a computer with Microsoft Word. Ballpoint pen for her. And when I wrote... Really? Pen, yeah, ballpoint pen. That was her story. Wow. And, you know, in my memoir, The Handoff, written by Alan Eisenstock, I enjoyed the process as we co-authored the book, but he wrote it. Mm -hmm. And I was involved with every frame in the process of it because he interviewed me and we talked and we had so many sit downs and, and I would see the draft and every chapter. And if I thought I could add something, I would, but Alan Eisenstock, who's wrote well over uh, so many great books. I mean, the list, please just Google Alan Eisenstock, my friend who co-authored my memoir. Do you get the email with his music list that he's yeah, been doing he during the pandemic? Great email list of music <laughs> during the pandemic. He really is a br brilliant guy. Yeah. I mean, when Andrew Ashwood, our former boss and my mentor passed away and, Alan wrote the book Sports Talk. He wrote the book Sports mm -hmm. Talk, which included me in it. We began a friendship and we kept in touch. And it's really about a big part of the book, right? Is keeping in touch. Right. And stepping up with your friends. Alan and I, when we first met, when he came and interviewed me in San Francisco one night, really bizarre story, a chapter in the book Sports Talk, big chapter on Arnie Spanier. Oh, great. And, you know, Mike and the Mad Dog history and Mike North, whoever was in the book at the time. We grew a friendship, and then when Andrew died and I came up with this idea for this project, I reached out to Alan, and Alan had a lot of books in his pipeline, and he was going to write a lot more, just wrote one on Elgin Baylor. He writes about everything. He took the project on, and it changed my life because it grew our friendship. It gave me an opportunity to talk. It was a therapy session, and then Alan took the work, and I thought made a brilliant book. Yeah, and he did. Give him yep. all, you know, the credit for it. Because he wrote was something that I could never write, never piece together that story. And it just goes to show you, Tom, how talented these authors are. How incredible. He talks about the process of going into his cave where he has to write. And I'm sure he has blocks at times and has to work through it. Right. Focus on his family. But an author who can complete a book and finish a literally piece of work is incredible to me. Oh, yeah. People don't realize it. If you can get through your life writing one, you know, he's had so many, but anybody who can get get one book published is pretty amazing. That's why I, the, the term one hit wonder for musicians is always kind of uh, uh, such a, an insult because how many people have had one hit on the radio that was in the top 10, right? Because everyone has... Uh, a favorite one-hit wonder over the years from Crash Test Dummies or Daddy Dewdrop or whomever, Midnight Oil, Kaja Goo Goo. There's so many great bands that had one hit in a big country. <laughs> and so, but, but how many of, how many, you know, how many do you have? How many do I have? None. So it's no insult to be on MTV's one-hit wonders. Uh, because, uh, or to have a, a book uh, written in your, in this case, Alan Eisenstock, who's had a dozen.
Yeah, he's had a lot of good books. Hey, finally, I saw your band Death Cab for Cutie. Oh, great. They were on one of the late night shows and they did <clears throat> Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls. Ooh. Uh, from TLC. Uh huh. Fantastic. Yeah. I just want to say I watched it in bed and was watching it because, you know, I now have a deep, deep hatred. I'll get rid of the word hatred, disdain. <laughs> for late night talk shows now yes one right night they'll have elizabeth warren on or cory booker or rudy giuliani or someone else and i go what are you doing you're ruining <laughs> late night you're ruining it don't do it and they're doing it and they're just throwing politicians on the couch who aren't entertaining and it, people are yeah don't bring out a politician it. unless they can play the piano right you know when richard nixon was on the night show it's because he knew how to play the fucking piano <laughs> Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.